This podcast is supported by Zoll Life Vest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit lifevestresults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, it's Amit Goyal. This fabulous case was brought to us through a Cardiners collaboration with THT 2022 with mentorship from Dr. Dan Burkoff. We had the privilege of selecting the top cases presented at the conference to feature on this podcast. So this very case was brought to us from Brigham Women's Hospital and to teach us we have an all-star team, including two veterans, Dr. Maria Pabon, the FIT ambassador from the institution, Dr. Randerson Cardozo, who previously taught us all about the connection between influenza and myocardial infarction. And for the very first time, we are so excited to welcome Dr. Saad Sultan Guman and Dr. Kevin Brazell. Team, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Amit. It's so great to be here again. So I'm Maria Pogon. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows at Brigham, and I'm happy to be here sharing this case with you and with my uh, co-fellow and great friend, Dr. Bersell. So I guess this is a good way to introduce Kevin Bersell. <laughs> Thanks for the transition. So Kevin Bersell, another third-year general cardiology fellow at Brigham Women's Hospital. Grew up in New Hampshire before heading down to Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee for my MD and PhD training. And then I came to Brigham as an intern after completion of residency, remained on for cardiology fellowship. Hey guys, thanks Amit and Dan for having us. It's certainly an honor, very excited to share this case. My name is Saad. I am originally from Pakistan. I just finished my interventional cardiology fellowship at Brigham. I got there by way of spending three years in medicine residency in San Antonio and three years in Charlottesville, Virginia for cardiology fellowship. Just graduated 10 days ago and I'm very excited to start working as an attendant. Hey everyone, this is Randerson Cardoso. It's truly an honor to be here. I want to thank the Cardinerds team for the opportunity. I'm originally from Brazil, did my medicine training in University of Miami and then did my cardiology fellowship at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, where I had the great honor and privilege to train with uh, Dr. Dan Ann Binder. And then I uh, did a multimodality imaging fellowship at the Brigham, and now I am transitioning to a faculty position at the Brigham doing general cardiology and multimodality imaging. Wow, Kevin Renson, Maria, and Saad, amazing to be here with you tonight. And also you too, um, I was actually gonna sit out this recording session but then I had so much FOMO and I love hanging out with you and doing these uh, case reports. So I felt compelled to hop on and thanks for uh, letting me join you with this great group. And Randerson, or should I say Dr. Cardozo, congratulations on becoming faculty. This is truly amazing. And uh, this is gonna be such a great discussion. I know that when Randerson and I used to sign out before uh, we, we gave each other you know, the service, so let's say the CCU and signing out over the weekend, it ended up being like a five hour cardio nerds, early cardio nerds like chill session as we discussed all all of the patients that we'd be handing over and, and we'd get home in the wee hours of the morning because we just couldn't stop talking about cardiology. So this is really exciting to be here. But now that we're in Boston, do you guys have a place where you'd like to discuss some serious cardiology? Boston is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite cities. I'd just like to add then that I'd learned half the cardiology I know from our discussions pre and post transitioning the services. 
What do you think, Kevin? Where should we have the discussion? What's your favorite part about Boston? I know the cardio nerds have been to Boston a few times. I've heard previous episodes. We got the, the entertained at Fenway Park on the Esplanade. So I think I'm going to take you a little bit outside of the city to the suburbs where I live with my family, including two kids on the South Shore of Massachusetts. So we're going to go sit at the beach on this nice warm summer night. I love that. Guys, that sounds so lovely. So sitting here on the beach, watching the sunset, let's go over this case. Great. So I'm excited to do the introduction here for an amazing teaching case that I encountered a few months ago while I was the overnight cardiology fellow on call. And of course, this comes in through the ED at about 1 a.m. where we hear there's a code STEMI. And so the patient was a 55-year-old male with a past medical history of only hyperlipidemia who was coming to the hospital via EMS for sudden onset chest discomfort, shortness of breath, and associated diaphoresis while using the bathroom. He tried laying down without improvement in his symptoms, stated feeling well with the shortness of breath and lightheadedness, which triggered the patient to call EMS. EMS reports finding the patient diaphoretic and apparent distress. They also obtained additional history of chest discomfort five days prior to calling EMS. Wow. I'm going to step in and just say, I think Kevin had called me in this case as well, but just listening to what you just said and being a fresh graduate of international cardiology, I'm sure Dan will agree with me that this sounds like this could be an MI or at least I'm, maybe I'm just being biased. Let me see what Maria thinks from a general cardiologist perspective, what other possibilities she would have on mind. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm surrounded by interventional cardiologists, so definitely an MI is a concern. But, you know, just to keep the differential broad, since it's early in the case, I think we should also think about other possibilities like PE, aortic dissection, even something like myopericarditis or myocarditis. Other things that could be, although less likely, just based on the story that Kevin has told us is pneumonia, GERD, but Kevin, I would like to know a little bit more about this case. and I'm sure we can narrow down our differential even more. And another question I have is, was he in treatment for his hyperlipidemia, since that was the only thing in his past medical history that was relevant? Very insightful questions and way to keep things broad. So I was going to first comment a little bit more on the history, and then we'll talk a little bit about his treatment. I was impressed that EMS had obtained the additional history that five days prior to the presentation, he had an episode of what he interpreted as GERD. He described a central burning sensation with radiation to the right shoulder, which was unusual for him. That first episode of chest discomfort resolved with him laying on the floor. He denied any recent fevers, travel history, and of any clotting disorders for himself or his family. But he does have a family history of early myocardial infarction in his father, which unfortunately led to his death at the age of 36. This is what prompted him to be evaluated for any cholesterol disorders. So for, in terms of his hyperlipidemia, he's put on a statin many years ago, but eventually ran out of his medication and has not been connected to the healthcare system for the past seven years. He has no history of smoking or other risk factors for coronary artery disease. He denies any exertional chest discomfort but does have some intermittent dyspnea exertion while climbing several flights of stairs. So I guess our suspicion for a coronary event is even now higher than before. Before we go on, I just want to pause and just remember the important role of statins in primary prevention. And 
especially for someone like our patient, right? He has a strong family history of early CAD, presumably an elevated LDL of more than 100. And uh, let's remember when we see a patient for primary prevention, we should obviously measure their lipid profile and measure their ASCVD risk. And based on that, recommend statins versus not. But it is also important to remember two things. And the ASCVD risk calculator can actually miss some people that are at high risk. So patients that have risk-enhancing factors, for example, women with history of preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or autoimmune diseases, et cetera, you may want to reassess the need for a statin for primary prevention sooner. In our patients specifically, things that worry me are definitely his family history of early death by an MI and his father at 36 year old. So I would definitely recommend this guy to be on a statin for sure. But anyway, so we're worried about an MI. So Kevin, tell us what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So the emergency medical services shared your concerns. On arrival of EMS, he was noted to have a pale appearance and was twice tachypnic. His vital signs in the field were notable for tachycardia with rates in the 120s, hypotension with the systolic blood pressure in the 60s of his right upper extremity and 80s in the left upper extremity. He was setting 98%, but that was on six liters of supplemental oxygen delivered via nasal cannula. In the field, his EKG demonstrated sinus rhythm with ST elevations. The patient was therefore given 325 milligrams of aspirin and transferred to our hospital for further management. So given this presentation, let's just state the obvious. What are you guys concerned about? I'm certainly concerned about a STEMI since you mentioned the ST elevations in the EKG, but the differential blood pressure in both arms make me really concerned also about aortic dissection, which let's remember, it could extend into the coronaries and essentially cause an MI. So a good point to remember in this type of patients when there's chest pain, there's some suspicion of dissection. If it's not super high suspicion, we can use a D-dimer. So I'm wondering what you guys did when you saw him in the emergency department, because I think that's when Kevin and Saad met him, right? That's exactly right. So when the patient first arrived at ED, he was uncomfortable appearing, pale, diaphoretic, planning of some chest discomfort. On the quick assessment, he was lukewarm and clammy with weak peripheral pulses. And like every good cardiology fellow, I was hovering around the bed as I got him situated, obtained an EKG. The EKG showed sinus rhythm with a rate of 115 beats per minute, normal axis, normal intervals. And on my review, it confirmed that there are two to three millimeter ST elevations in V5 and V6 and ST depressions in V1 and V2. We obtained a posterior EKG and that also demonstrated posterior ST elevations. The patient remained hypotensive with systolic blood pressures in the 80s and heparin was not given out of concern for dissection, just as you mentioned. I performed a bedside echo while the nursing team repeated bilateral blood pressures, which demonstrated systolic pressures in the 80s. The echo showed a moderate size, complex appearing pericardial effusion with echogenic material, which was concerning for thrombus. Repeat assessment immediately showed that his blood pressure was now in the 70s, and therefore norepinephrine was started. So he definitely had evidence of a STEMI. And thinking more generally beyond this case, how do you guys usually deal with the uncertainty if a patient has aortic dissection as a cause of myocardial infarction? Kevin, that's a great question. One that I've always had or often had I will say that just coming out of interventional fellowship, one of the things you have to deal with being a, an interventional cardiologist is, you know, trying to 
perfect everything. When patients come in with STEMIs, things are moving fast. You try to activate the cath lab, coordinating with the team, also making sure the patient is prepped, ready, has been pre-treated, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things, one of the hard metrics we were trying to achieve was a door to balloon time. So everything tries to move fast. I do believe that there are certain scenarios where you just have to pause and think of the bigger picture. Let's take this patient, for instance. So me and you were both there with the patient. He was sick. We could tell he had a differential blood pressure in his arms. There's a pericardial effusion that you saw on your echo with thrombogenic material. Of course, that concerns you for a dissection. So I think this is the right scenario where if you have time, you should consider doing a coronary CTA, which we did in this case. We had a 30-minute window before the cath lab would be ready, which is usual for any STEMI center. So we decided to just take him to the CT scan for a quick scan. It took five minutes for the scan. It took three minutes for the radiologist to get back to us with the results. And by the time the cath lab was ready and we were in the cath lab. So I think the timing worked out perfectly. In this case, it was very helpful to rule that out. Having said that, we don't want to over-presume the diagnosis of aneurytic dissection with the STEMI. It's a rare occurrence to have both together. So we don't want to send patients to the CAT scan all the time because eventually it will lead to some sort of a delay in primary PCI. The other thing to think of is that if the patient is already en route to the CAT lab and the decision has been made and you're committed to take them to the CAT lab, but you still have the suspicion of a dissection in the aortic root or going down to coronary, you can always perform an aortogram in the CAT lab as well. Regardless, I think this is a great area of clinical research for any med students or residents that are listening. Let me just jump in there and add, these are all amazing points. And just a pearl that I got from seeing an aortic section earlier on and then discussing the case with one of our aortopathy experts, Dr. Trail at Johns Hopkins, is that aortic dissections, the patients are like writhing on the table. That first patient that I encountered, I just like saw he's like bouncing off the table. He couldn't even like sit in the bed. He actually went to the cath lab because it was presumed a coronary event, but he ended up having an actual aortic dissection. And then like, you know, that STEMI chest pain is just different. Like you could just see it, it's boring into the patient's chest, but they're not necessarily like jumping off of the table. They're just like telling you I'm having tremendous pressure and pain, et cetera. It's like a, almost like a different phenomenon. Here, obviously, you have bigger suspicions because of some of the imaging findings that you're concerned that you wanted to rule it out. But that's one of the pearls that I got. And then just even listening to your case thus far, you know, when I get a call about a patient who is having a STEMI from the emergency room and you hear that the patient like just had their chest pain like 10 minutes ago, one hour ago, you're headed there, but you're like thinking about a different type of patient. But you had mentioned earlier that this patient had been complaining of intermittent chest pain over the last couple of days, et cetera. It's like a totally different patient. And so to think broadly about the patient, you know, sometimes before you run off to the cath lab is usually high yield. And those extra few minutes actually pay off big time. That is great insight, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we proceeded to have the CTA done emergently. They were able to open the scanner so quickly that I didn't even have time to assess for pulses paradoxus. As we know, cardiac tamponade is a clinical diagnosis that we can assess with just knowing that there's the presence of pericardial effusion and then an exaggerated pulses paradoxus. Our CT scan did in fact confirm the presence of pericardial effusion, but was negative for dissection. So I guess we can pause here and have Saad tell us what happens next in the cath lab. Absolutely. So let's pause and let me just summarize what's happening with this patient. So we have a 55-year-old male, presents with a black roll posterior MI, differential blood pressure in both arms, a new effusion with some echogenic material on echo, 
CTA thankfully is negative for an aortic dissection. We of course proceed taking to the cath lab, get the CT read back, confirms there's no dissection. Now, just prior to taking him to the ER, or prior to leaving the ER, he was started on pressors because he was starting to get more and more hypertensive. Some of the lab work came back from the ER. His troponin was the high sensitivity troponin was 1400. Lactic acid was 10. So this gentleman who's having an MI and is also in shock. So I think one key question we had at this time for ourselves was whether we should just jump the gun and perform a coronary angiogram fix the culprit lesion, or should we perform a pericardiosynthesis in this scenario? This doesn't happen often that you have this dilemma. STEMIs are generally considered straightforward. You have to go and try to salvage the myocardium. But this was an interesting situation where, you know, I think I learned a lot from my attending being there, Ajur Kochar. We had some evidence to suggest that maybe doing pericardiosynthesis was the right thing up front. This is a gentleman with a new fusion. He's hypotensive with a pressure requirement. I think that's a no-brainer for anyone to know that a quick tap will definitely make things much better for you. And that's what we decided to do. We did a quick pericardiosynthesis, which was the right decision, I believe. His opening pressure in the pericardial space was 30, which is significantly high. We drained out about 350 cc's of hemorrhagic effusion within seconds or minutes. And the closing pressure was about 10. And the fusion actually stopped, which is reassuring because otherwise you worry that there's a constant connection between some LV chamber or, or cardiac chamber and the pericardial space. Right after that, the pressure requirement actually started to come down. We obtained right radial axis and uh, performed a coronary angiogram. Pretty normal looking right coronary artery. The left circumflex territory was the uh, co-dominant, but there was a large ON1 branch that had an acute thrombotic lesion with the 100% occlusion, which was clearly the culprit lesion for his MI. There was also some mild to moderate stenosis in a diagonal branch, in a first diagonal artery of the LED, which we would obviously name as a non-culprit lesion. So we decided to proceed with the culprit lesion PCI. This time we placed one drug lutex stent. This was guided by uh, intravascular imaging, and we were able to treat the underlying uh, ST elevation MI this way. Saad, thank you for walking us through those hairy moments. You know, sometimes when we hear something about an ST elevation myocardial infarction, we think, don't just stand there, do something. But there are moments when you have to think, don't just do something, stand there and not just proceed with our normal train of thought and stepwise actions. So here's a situation that was a little bit different from our, you know, typical one hour of chest pain, ST elevation, occluded artery, opening artery. Yeah, there were some different considerations here, you know, you had the foresight to get a CT that was very helpful in ruling out a, a aortic dissection in a patient with differential blood pressures. In this setting, another thing that is worth considering is that he had chest pain that originally started five days ago, and it's essentially a totally occluded artery. And some might say that, you know, might invoke the O trial for this kind of context, already has key waves in the inferior and lateral leads. But this is a patient who is actively having chest pain and is in cardiogenic shock with an elevated lactate, so at least a sky stage C situation. And so this is a situation where if we think that this is hemodynamic collapse from a STEMI, regardless of how long it's been going on, the right thing to do is to open the artery. I'm looking at the results here and the, our cardiac audience can look at the cath results and the angiograms on the website. But just Kind of stepping back and thinking through the complex hemorrhagic effusion that was causing cardiac tamponade, if you don't think about this as a aortic dissection, the other thing to consider probably would be a myocardial infarction with a free wall rupture. Do you mind just kind of walking 
us through what was going on in your mind and how you were sort of triaging the decision-making in those moments. Thanks for asking that question. I think that is very important topic that you brought up and probably the meat of this purpose of having this discussion. Now, you asked the relevant questions uh, about the war trial, discussion about LVC war option, and that was exactly what our concern was. As you mentioned, we had already ruled out a section. Now, what else is causing this fusion, thrombus-like appearance inside the pericardial space? And certainly, an LVC wall rupture or other mechanical complication has to be on top of your differential list. And as we know, the treatment for that would be surgical repair. So I think the best case scenario of dealing with this kind of situation in the middle of the night to three o'clock where patient is sick and still having chest pain is to have a quick but evidence-based heart team approach. So that's kind of what we decided to do at that point. We didn't want to delay his care, but we also wanted to make sure that we basically do the right thing for this patient as quickly as possible. So we called up the cardiologist who was going to be taking care of this patient. Of course, now they have seen the patient. We called up the cardiac surgeon on call as well and had a very brief, a short, but high-yield discussion with them. And I think that the decision was made that while certainly there's a high chance that this could be a mechanical complication, a free wall rupture, Taking him for surgical repair right away without any advanced imaging might be a premature decision. I think none of us were comfortable pushing that button yet. So we decided that what we'll do is we'll, we'll go ahead and treat him percutaneously for now, at least treat the MI because he's still having chest pain and give him the advantage of having an open coronary artery. And then, of course, try to address that question of a mechanical complication as quickly as possible. And again, I think you nailed it. You know, he's not a war trial candidate because he's still having ongoing chest pain. So again, a complex decision had to be made basically as quickly as possible. I think that we as a team tried our best to kind of get to that. Wow. Very interesting and very insightful from your guys' part. What was the thought about DAP after putting a stent in someone that we're worried that is at higher risk for bleeding? Yes. Very good question as well, Marianne. Kind of just to add to what we had just discussed about the potential for a mechanical complication, as I suggested, anticoagulation and dual antibiotic therapy or any sort of anticoagulation becomes very important in this context because if you over-anticoagulate them, there's always a risk of worsening that mechanical complication. So as we know, guidelines for ST elevation, I might recommend loading with aspirin and either ticagrelor or prasugrel, preferred over Plavix as soon as possible, and then adapt duration of 12 months post-PCI. In this instance, what we did was we, of course, loaded him with aspirin in the ER. Under normal circumstances, we would have loaded him with ticagrelor at the end of the procedure, at the end of the PCI, but we decided to choose the cancrelor, which is an IV P2Y12 inhibitor, an IV version of, uh, say, ticagrelor prasugrel. It has a more rapid on and off mechanism of action and is as good as uh, any of the oral alternatives. So our rationale was that, you know, based on the finding of thrombogenic material or fusion on echo, of course, there's the potential for a mechanical complication. So having the foresight that this patient will and might need to go to the OR later on, we decided to keep him on IV candelor so that if he does need surgical repair, this can be turned off and he can go for repair. Oral blockers, as you know, have a higher washout interval and, of course, are associated with a higher instance of surgical bleeding. Wow. Yes. Very important decisions that you had to make at 3 a.m. fast as well. But now I want to hear from Kevin because I know I've been in Kevin's shoes. So I want to know how this patient looked when you received him in the CCU after all of these adventures in the cath lab. 
And inventors they certainly were. So after all the hard work by Saad and the team down the cath lab, I received the patient the CCU. And at this time, when I reassessed him, he was still complaining of a 5 out of 10 chest discomfort. Um, and even more worrisome, he's still draining from the pericardial drain that was placed in the cath lab and had an additional 200 cc's of sanguinous fluid. Fortunately, we were able to wean off pressors, but as we were now interpreting all the data we have from the lab set in the ED and had resulted while he was in the cath lab, he had evidence of poor end organ perfusion with a lactate elevated at 10, a creatinine of 1.7 from a baseline of about 0.9, and certainly worried that he had the potential for getting more sick. But I'll pause here and Maria, what would you be concerned about if you met this patient? <laughs> I mean, I'm very concerned, but the thing that worries me the most is I still don't have a great explanation for the pericardial effusion since we ruled out dissection. And so piggybacking on what Sad mentioned yes before is that I think my biggest worry is a mechanical complication of an MI. And as many of you had mentioned before, taking into account that his original symptoms started five days ago, we could certainly be dealing with a free will rupture. And let's remember that the incidence of free will rupture is very low in our current PCI era. But before, when it was more common, we learned that LV free will rupture usually happens within the first five days of an MI, although it can happen up to the first two weeks. And it is usually pretty dramatic, it's usually sudden cardiac death or a shock and PEA arrest. This patient was certainly in shock when he arrived in DED. But free will rupture can also present as incomplete or subacute LV free will rupture when organized thrombus and the pericardium can seal the hole. So that's what I'm certainly worried about. So I'm just dying to know what happened, Kevin. Yeah, so besides Dabt, who started on a high-intensity statin, given his LDL 135 and STEMI presentation. And like you, I was quite concerned about the free wall rupture, and we continued the conversation with cardiac surgery into the early morning. So in the meantime... The drainage from the pericardial drain had slowed down. It was no longer putting out frank blood. And we confirmed that it was still patent with the flushing. In the meantime, we ordered a few additional imaging studies to confirm our suspicion. But while we waited for our cardiac MRI to be performed, we had a post-PCI transthoracic echo completed, which showed moderately depressed LV systolic function with the ejection fraction of 35%. There is basal and mid and for a lateral and interlateral akinesis, and basal and mid-anterior hypokinesis. IV function was preserved but on the lower limits of normal, and there remained a small pericardial fusion adjacent to the interlateral wall of the LV. And so then we ordered that cardiac MRI. So wait, wait, wait. I think this is the time that we call our new imaging favorite attending, Dr. Randerson Cardoso. Kevin and I have spent so much time learning from Randerson as a fellow. So now as an attending is going to be even more learning. It is only fair that the rest of the audience can have that honor of learning from him. So Randerson, I would love for you to walk us through the MRI images. Before you explain the images, I'd like for you to just talk a little bit about the role of MRI in this particular patient. What can it add to the clinical picture and the diagnosis? And even just like the role of cardiac MRI in mechanical complications of an MI, which I don't think we see this often anymore. What a great case. Uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to participate, everyone. It's a great question about the indication, Maria. It's not often in the MRI that we get a request where the indication is to evaluate for free wall rupture. 
So I think it's a great point for us to talk a little bit about the decision to get the MRI, when it might be helpful in a situation like this. So uh, certainly as I'll go over in a second, especially in the imaging this patient, the MRI can be definitive and confirming that there is a free wall rupture. Now, of course, you have to weigh that against the uh, status in terms of perfusion and hemodynamic stability of the patient. We all know that hemodynamic stability or instability exists on a spectrum. So the bottom line is that when the patient truly is crashing and burning, MRI should not in any way delay surgical treatment for when the suspicion is high for a free wall rupture. Now, in this case, as was discussed by Saad and Kevin, there was a discussion with all the parts involved, intensivists, the surgeons, and it was thought that the patient was stable enough to undergo the MRI and that it would be helpful in confirming the diagnosis. So with that in mind, we can go over the findings for this patient. And indeed, it would be very interesting in evaluating this possibility of free wall rupture. So the first image set that we're going to evaluate is the CINE imaging. And just like the echocardiogram, you will see here the regional wall motion abnormalities, the akinesis of the lateral wall. But it's also important to look at the tissue characteristics here because uh, these cine images specifically were obtained post-contrast. And as you know, we use gadolinium as our contrast agent for MRI and gadolinium as an extracellular agent will accumulate where there is dead myocardium, both in an acute or chronic situation. So that's why you see this akinetic area being bright because there's increased extracellular space and because there's gadolinium there in these post-contrast imaging. You will also note that there is this subendocardial rim of hypo-intense signal. It's dark images. And we'll go over that on the mechanism on that finding on the late gadolinium enhancement images, which we'll look at right now. So next we'll move over to the LG images in over here, again, these LG images will be contrast enhanced, of course, the gadolinium has been given. And because of that, we'll image these in a T1 weighted sequence. Gadolinium, what it does is it shortens T1 time and then makes areas with expanded extracellular space bright. That's what we see here. You can see this transmural enhancement of the lateral wall, indicating, of course, that's the area of the acute or subacute infarct. But specifically, in this case, you see this rim of hypo-intense imaging in this endocardium. And that's a marker of an acute or subacute infarct. That's called microvascular obstruction. The concept here is very simple. You have areas where there is complete destruction of the microvasculature. There is edema in that area and destruction of the capillaries and microvasculature so that gadolinium can't get there at all. That's called microvascular obstruction. It's actually a marker not only of an acute or subacute infarct, but also on a marker of adverse remodeling. Patients will have this, they'll do worse even when there is reperfusion, and then they'll do worse in the long term with adverse remodeling of the myocardium. But I specifically want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this subendocardial hypointense area of microvascular obstruction. It extends all the way through the thickness of a specific segment in the lateral wall and extends into the pericardium in this complex pericardial effusion. And that's an area what we call intramural hemorrhage. And it's pretty intuitive what that means. There's been extravasation of erythrocytes and hemoglobin into this space. 
And hemoglobin and its products have paramagnetic effect. They essentially destroy the signal. That's why it's black. This intramural hemorrhage extending from the subendocardial microvascular obstruction all the way to this complex pericardial fusion shows that there is impending or ongoing rupture. It's just a more of a subacute presentation, which fits with the clinical scenario of this ongoing drainage from the pericardial drain. And so this really confirms the location and confirms that wall rupture is the diagnosis here. And then the last thing I'll say is another possible finding that would lead us to the suspicion of a free wall rupture would be a finding of a pseudoaneurysm. And as you all know, that's a contained rupture of the myocardium, but we actually didn't see that here. So this is just another flavor, another type of the subacute presentations of free wall rupture that in this case was clearly shown with the cardiac MRI and tissue characterization. Dr. Cardozo, thank you so much for this beautiful description of these images. You know, and I think one thing that used to confuse me is how hard sometimes you have to look for mechanical complications. You hear something like free wall rupture, it sounds very definitive. It paints this picture of something that should be very obvious, but this patient has had a transthoracic echo, actually several probably by this point, and gated chest CT looking for the aortic dissection, and a free wall rupture was not specifically noted. Now, these images on the CMR beautifully, ominously, and very clearly demonstrate that this patient has had a segmental infarction with free wall rupture. But there are several potential drawbacks in applying this strategy of getting a CMR with suspicion of a mechanical complication broadly, right? Because MRI images, the imaging, the scanner, expert readers may not be readily available. If a patient is sick, unstable, that's probably not the right place for the patient to spend their half an hour to an hour to get these sequences. If they are tachycardic or have an arrhythmia, it may be hard to gate. If they have implanted devices, it may be hard to get the images, etc. What do you think about the relative value? Because the question really is binary. Free wall rupture, yes or no, in terms of how it's going to guide the decision-making. MRI obviously adds a lot more in terms of prognostication as well. But you know, for places where this may not be available as readily or the clinical situation may not be well-suited for an MRI, what do you think about the value of a TEE in this context? Those are great questions, Amit. So as you pointed out, it's clear that MRI adds a lot by doing the tissue characterization component. That's something that's much less helpful with echo, transthoracic or transesophageal, or even cardiac CT. Now, the downside, of course, is the time. And I think it's helpful for us to discuss that specifically. While a complete MRI with multiple different sequences may take up to 45 minutes or around that time frame, to get the core images that are needed for a diagnosis like this, basically the ones I've described, the CINE imaging and the LGE tissue characterization, you could do that in as short as 15 or 20 minutes. Again, that's the role of the imager in knowing what the indication is and tailoring, especially an exam like MRI, that's time consumptive, tailoring it exactly to the indication. So you, in this case, we certainly would have done an abbreviated protocol where you just get those key imaging. In terms of the TEE, personally, I think that would make sense where you would maybe consider it intraoperatively, essentially. As you all discussed very, you know, on point, the fact that you had this complex effusion on echo, obviously once you drain it, it's clear that it's hemorrhagic. And when you put the clinical history together, when you have more time to think about this, 
it's certainly the most likely diagnosis at that point. And just like I don't think I would delay going to the OR for a cardiac MRI when the patient is too unstable, I would also, I think, get the TE just in the context of getting everything ready for a surgical repair, essentially. Wonderful. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah, that was amazing, Randerson. And just want to mention for the rest of the audience, make sure to look at the images on the CardioNerds website because you don't want to miss these images. They are very impressive. So, Kevin, do you want to tell us what happened to the patient? Absolutely. So given the findings that were just expertly described, he was taken emergent to the OR for repair of a free wall rupture. In the OR, a transesophageal echo was performed pre-repair and did not have the sensitivity to visualize the rupture as uh, was detected by the cardiac MRI in response to the question from before. In the OR, they saw serosanguinous pericardial effusion and a significant amount of clot that was adherent to the lateral wall of the ventricle that was evacuated. They visualized the infarcted tissue on the lateral wall with the small perforation, which the surgeons were able to fix by reapproximating the tissue and connecting viable myocardium with the final touches of bioglue and Byron sealant patch. Wow. So how did he do after the repair? Yeah, thanks, Maria. I can talk about that. I continued to follow him peripherally for the next few days while he was in the hospital. He did pretty well. Initially, post-op, he was in a mixed cardiogenic slash distributive shock as well. He had some mild fevers of concern that there might be some infection going on. However, he did pretty good. Like in the next few days, he came off oppressors. The surgical team had placed a balloon pump as well, which also came off uh, after a few days of support. Once he was off pressers and he was weaned off balloon pump, the, the team started him on medical therapy. And by day eight, he was discharged, underwent cardiac rehab, and is known to be starting his work again. He also had an echo on follow-up, which showed that his EF had recovered to 51% as well. So it's a very good outcome for this patient. You don't to know that because, as you know, these post-MI complications, especially mechanical complications, can have very devastating outcomes. I think Maria mentioned before as well that post-MI pre-wall rupture is very rare in the era of primary PCI. The incidence that has been reported with most reports is between 0.1 to 1%. It used to be a lot more higher before primary PCI, just thrombolytics. Mortality as well, once this occurs, is also very high, at least 8 to 10% in most reports, and as high as 50-60% in some as well. There's some traditional risk factors that are associated with the occurrence of LB free wall rupture. Namely, these include older age, female sex, prior history of hypertension, and interestingly, a first lateral wall MI. One of the things I found interesting when I was reading about this case afterwards is that contrary to popular belief, steroid use actually does not increase the risk of post-MI rupture. There's a recent report regarding that as well. Some traditional protective factors have also been reported. These include patients who have LV hypertrophy, a uh, known history of heart failure or a prior MI, possibly due to presence of scarring, early use of post-MI beta blockers, and of course, early intervention BPCI. So these are some of the traditional protective factors that have been reported. I want to quickly pivot to Kevin and just ask him what he thought, because he had done a tremendous job of triaging this patient up front. Just curious what he thinks in this case, or in general, should we solve the red flags that should alert a clinician into having a mechanical complication of MI in their mindset when they evaluate a patient with MI. 
So I am grateful for all the learning that this patient provided to me and I'm glad to share some of that with the audience today as we kind of think about some of our take-home points. And really, as we evaluate people who've had recent myocardial infarction, there should be some red flags that make us suspicion that there was a mechanical complication such as free wall rupture, as in this case, but also there could be interventricular septal rupture or papillary muscle rupture as these mechanical complications of tissue damage. And our suspicion should be high if we encounter a patient who's in shock or hypotensive or perhaps had a delayed presentation after their anginal symptoms. If we see a new murmur, then you start to think more about papillary rupture or interventricular septal rupture. And if there's a new pericardial effusion on your bedside ultrasound, then certainly that can make you concerned for free wall rupture. So for our patient, he had evidence of shock. He had a delayed presentation through careful history taken with his first symptoms five days prior to presentation and had this moderate and complicated effusion. So for us, we're excited for the outcome to this case that Saad had described after a surgical repair and continued recovery from both his heart attack and surgery. As he continues to follow up, it'll be important for him to stay connected to cardiology for ongoing medical management. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I want to add something else and not particularly related to this case, but sort of, because Saad mentioned that his EF had completely normalized during follow-up. And so the last thing I wanted to add to this case was that he was actually discharged in pretty good doses of GDMT. And just want to highlight how important it is to start and uptitrate GDMT as an inpatient as well. Obviously, in the setting of ischemic cardiomyopathy, you know, revascularization plays a huge role. But as most of this audience knows, starting and uptitrating GDMT in the hospital as ABLE is key. I read in a paper recently, we can use the hospitalization as a tool to increase downstream long-term use of these medications. Some of these medications, like an SGLT2 inhibitor, can have an impact in patients in a short period of time. So we know from the Emperor Reduced trial that all-cause mortality and heart failure hospitalization events were already statistically significantly different, lower, in the patients treated with empagliflozin versus placebo just after 12 days of treatment. So just a plug for, you know, good old general cardiology of starting GDMT as soon as you can. Team, what a important conversation that we just had. Not only did Saad take us through a case presentation that he literally lived through and kind of demonstrated to us what you have to do with the information that's available to you and the key decisions that you have to make in the urgent setting and then in the subacute setting. But also you guys demonstrated this ability to reflect and think about the case afterwards and pull out different things that we can learn from each individual patient, which is really what this whole CNCR series is all about, telling our story to each other and dissecting them and understanding them so that every patient makes us take care of future patients better. So it has been an absolute treat to hang out with you, Kevin, Maria, Saad, and Dr. Cardozo, and of course, Amit, and be with you guys in Boston to discuss such a very challenging case. And it's amazing to hear that this patient survived and is doing well. It's just something we cannot take for granted. So often we find a hemodynamic issue or a catastrophic issue like this, and it's very interesting to discuss. And ultimately, we may end the episode on a sad note, but to hear that this patient actually did so well with this multidisciplinary care is just really, really inspiring. So thank you all for bringing this important case and thanks for being here tonight. Thank you guys for inviting us. It's always such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a treat. Congrats on what you guys have done with Cardio Nerds. It's incredible. And thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor.
Likewise, guys, great platform to discuss such cases. Absolutely a pleasure. Hello, my name is Ajur Kocher. I'm an interventional cardiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I feel extremely privileged to provide the faculty discussion and editorial on this fascinating case. First, let me say congratulations to Dr. Ambinder and Dr. Goyle on truly a phenomenal job at creating this Cardio Nerds universe. I'd like to give a special shout out to Dr. Saad Kuman, who is my interventional fellow for this case, and Dr. Purcell and Dr. Papon, who have done a wonderful job managing this patient and really being rock star fellows at the Brigham that we get to work with very closely. So let me start by saying first that this story has a very positive ending. So I follow this patient in clinic and it is more than a year out now from the original event. As you may recall from the case discussion, his initial EF both on echo and cardiac MRI was around 40%. He obviously underwent a major surgery, but now is back to work. He's a little bit of a workaholic, so is working 60 to 70 hours a week. His EF on GDMT has increased to 50%. He's completely asymptomatic, either from a coronary artery disease perspective, from an angina standpoint, and from a heart failure standpoint, and is enjoying spending time, and not just at work, but with his sister, who accompanies him on most of his visits to clinic and then with his dog and goes on long walks with his dogs frequently. But let's go back to the case. So as Dr. Bursell and Dr. Kuman presented, you know, he came in with quite a dramatic presentation. He looked extremely ill, at least by the time I got to the ED. And there were a few things that Dr. Bursell and Dr. Kuman mentioned in the initial workup that I think are really important to emphasize and underscore, particularly for medical students and junior trainees as you're caring for patients with cardiovascular emergencies in general. One, obviously getting an EKG early on, looking at it yourself is vital, even if there is not a clear-cut STEMI, but the story sounds like it could be a evolving MI, making sure that you're getting repeat ECGs quickly because you can see a STEMI evolve in front of your eyes. And so that's really key. But there were two things that I feel were critical that were done for this case. One was that blood pressures were checked in both arms. This is not necessarily routinely done, but I have absolutely made it part of my practice In fact, when I get a call from the ED that they are activating a STEMI, I always ask them, have you checked the blood pressure in both arms? And if they haven't, I'll have them call me back with the results. And then the second, obviously, you're looking for any evidence of a aortic dissection because that dramatically changes your management plan, right? If you have a high enough index of suspicion for a aortic dissection, you're going to shunt the patient to a rapid CT to further evaluate and then go straight to surgery. Now, certainly, as Dr. Kuman had mentioned, you could ultimately bring a patient to the cath lab. You can do an aortogram, but that adds a time delay to where a patient needs to or should be going towards the OR for definitive operative repair of an ascending aortic dissection. But the second part of the workup that was done that is also not routinely done is a bedside transthoracic echo. And so 
all of my interventional fellows know that I strongly encourage them to throw an echo probe on the chest. And frankly, even if they're coming directly to the cath lab, as we are removing the shoes and getting them set up, I will often just throw an echo probe on because I think very quickly you're able to obtain some really vital data. One, obviously, if you skip a rib space up and take a look at the ascending aorta, if it's very large, and sometimes you can even see a flap, Again, you're going to think about a STAT CT and potential surgical consultation, but you can get a sense of the overall function. In this case, obviously, there was an pericardial effusion, which certainly influenced our decision making. The other key point that Dr. Kuhlman also made was the importance of a multidisciplinary approach or a hard team approach to any complexity. So in this case, we did have a strong index of suspicion for LV rupture. But look, things are always much more clear in the retrospectoscope than they are in the moment. And I think it's important to be humble to a reality that things aren't as clear when you're in the heat of the moment. For example, the traditional teaching for LV ruptures, one, it's extremely rare in the post-lytic era. The incidence is far less than 1%. Some of the reports say less than 0.1% of STEMIs will present as free wall rupture. And the biggest reason for this is probably twofold. One is that we've done a much better job of developing systems of care where we're getting patients in sooner. And so they're not developing as many of these mechanical complications. But the other part of that is there's probably a ton of survival bias. So the vast majority of patients who present with a free wall rupture uh, simply don't survive to a point where we can evaluate them. So one, a free wall rupture is extremely rare. And then two, the phenotype of a free wall rupture tends to be older women, older being greater than 70 years, which was not the patient in question who is a young 55-year-old, otherwise robust man. The other thing that was not clear, or at least was not clear to me when I first met him, was that his symptoms had actually started five days ago. So what I was told was he was woken up in the middle of the night with terrible crushing pain and came to the emergency room. And it was only after the case when we had a, a little bit of a luxury of time to talk with him some more that it became clear that there were symptoms that he had five days earlier. But to summarize, I would say when you are evaluating any STEMI patient or any MI patient in the ED, I think I would strongly encourage you to make a practice of getting bilateral arm blood pressures and putting an echo probe on. I think you get a ton of information about overall LV function, about RV function, if there's any possibility that the ST elevation may be mimicking a PE. You can get a sense of the aortic size and sometimes even if there's a flap, you get a sense if you put some color on of if there's any traumatic MR or AR, which again would correlate with the possibility of an aortic dissection. If there's any pericardial effusions, certainly sometimes ECGs, distinguishing between pericarditis and a true STEMI can be tough. And then a little bit about the volume status if you're able to look at the IVC as well. The next thing that I think was important to think about here is the patient was in frank shock. His initial lactate was 10 and his blood pressures were 70s over 50s despite being on norepi and dopamine. And what was interesting is how we 
thought about the next steps. I think when someone is in frank shock, in this case was probably sky D shock because he was having refractory shock despite two vasoactive medications. We'd called for an impella as well, but he clearly had a pericardial effusion with echo evidence of tamponade. And so we thought about addressing that first. As Dr. Kuman mentioned, his opening pressures were 29 or 30 in the pericardial space. I was very reluctant about doing this or very cautious about doing this because I was concerned that there was an LV rupture and then you just create a direct connection from the LV out to the strain, but he improved immediately after relieving some pressure. Not to get too technical on here, but just a few quick tips or thoughts for anyone who's doing pericardial effusions. I tend to put contrast in my Lido syringe, and as I'm aspirating, that allows me to just puff a little bit of contrast so I can see that I'm in the pericardium or not. You wanna see once you've gotten into a space, ideally you want to see the wire go all the way around the heart to make sure that you're in the pericardium and not in the RV, which is the usual place that you would end up if you went in too deep. I tend to be, if I have a luxury of time, particularly meticulous about checking that I'm in the pericardial space. So we'll check a pressure tracing. Oftentimes we'll do a bubble study and we'll use the inner cannula of a long micropuncture to do that so that whatever a little hole that you've made is not too big. And in addition to doing a bubble study where you inject bubbles through that inner cannula and look with an echocardiogram to see that the bubbles are in the pericardial space, you can do a contrast injection and then take a look on fluoroscopy again to confirm that you're in the pericardial space. But a key concept, I think, for any complication or a patient who is in shock is not to compound issues. So making sure that you're not rushing too fast is important as well. Dr. Guman and Dr. Pabon had discussed the decision-making about P2Y12 inhibitors for this case. So again, it was not clear at all during the case at 3 a.m. that the patient had an LV rupture. But we knew that the patient had this pericardial effusion. They were in pretty profound shock that, as Dr. Goyle and Dr. Ambinder alluded to, was out of proportion to what we appreciate in coronary angiography. So in coronary angiography, it was really an OM branch that was occluded for a young man seemed well out of proportion to cause that degree of shock. We knew towards the end of the case that we wanted to do some more investigation on what's going on there and is this possibly an LV rupture and if it was then we knew that there was a possibility of going to surgery which again leads to a fair question which is should we have stented or not we did poba the lesion initially and then examine it with OCT and appreciated that there was a fair amount of dissection and that it probably wasn't safe to leave that unstented because of the risk of acute closure without stenting it. And so then recognizing that we were likely or potentially going to surgery, I should say, chose to use Kangalore. And let me emphasize one additional point there, which is that there are a number of studies now that have looked at upfront oral loading of P2Y12 inhibitors, including the ambulance prior to a STEMI patient arriving in the ED. And there are no compelling data that support the practice of 
oral P2Y12 inhibition prior to coming to the cath lab. And for that reason, with the absence of data supporting an oral P2Y12 inhibitor upstream of PCI, even in STEMIs, we tend to be a little bit more conservative there recognizing that there may be certain circumstances where you are going to surgery where there is a high risk of bleeding and you want to be a little bit more cognizant using an agent that has a longer half-life than Kangrelor, which can be turned off very quickly. There are multiple advantages of using Kangrelor. One is, again, it, the on-off of the drug activity is very quick. And that is in contradistinction to some oral P2Y12 inhibitors that take a fair amount of time for that antiplatelet activity to start. One. Two, Kangrelor is a particular potent P2Y12 inhibitor. So that's a second advantage. Now, it's important, I think, to recognize that there are limitations as well. And probably the biggest limitation of Kangrelor is that it is an extremely expensive. Dr. Goyle and Dr. Ambinder asked me to talk a little bit about eCPR as well in conjunction with this case. And let me say, as Many of you probably already know eCPR is if a patient is actively coding that they are treated with ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. This is a modality that can be performed either centrally where surgeons will cut down and centrally cannulate a patient or can be done Peripherally, and there are many different patients that peripheral cannulation of ECMO can be done, including in the cath lab, certainly, but it can be done in the ED and even out in the field or bedside in the hospital. ECMO quickly for a overarching overview, there are usually two cannulas. There's usually a venous cannula that is placed in a femoral vein. Oftentimes we will try to place this in the right common femoral vein because it's a straight shot into the right atrium. Whereas where we try to have the venous cannula tip end up. And then there is usually one arterial cannula that is placed in oftentimes the common femoral artery and will be, will be placed in the distal portion of the aorta. And then there is a centrifugal flow pump that pulls blood in from the venous cannula it goes through this centrifugal pump and helps nourish the blood with oxygen and remove carbon dioxide and then gets returned back into the arterial cannula. And in the right patient, this modality of mechanical circulatory support can be extremely helpful both for high degrees of shock, so sky D and E shock, certainly for cath lab disasters where a patient comes in, we're working and the patient collapses, we certainly consider VE ECMO. And in the right patient who is having refractory VT or VF arrest, eCPR, so while you're doing CPR, deploying them on ECMO may have some real benefit. There are three large trials that have come out. The most promising was ARREST-2 that was led by Dimitri Yiannopoulos and colleagues out of the University of Minnesota. It's a very interesting statistical approach there where they took a Bayesian approach to evaluating this. The standard of care arm had a survival of about 10%, and in comparison, the eCPR group had a survival of about 
40%, so significantly higher. The trial was stopped early because of how overwhelmingly positive the trial was in favor of eCPR. And there are a couple other trials, including Inception, that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, ran out of the Netherlands that was less promising. So I think the data are still evolving there. However, I think we have enough data to suggest that in the right patient, again, patient selection will be key that eCPR should be ordered. And so for medical students, for junior trainees, I think the message that I would convey for eCPR is this, consider it and consider it early. So if there is nothing else that you remember from this, I would say that the most important metric for survival for eCPR is time to pump. So the longer the time is from the arrest to when the patient is placed on ECMO, the lower the survival is, and it plummets. The overall survival for all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is 10%. It's abysmal. And as a time metric, really anything beyond 60 minutes from time of cardiac arrest to time on pump is probably too much time. And so if you are responding to a code in the hospital and it is a young otherwise healthy patient who now has refractory VTVF, you shock them once or twice early in the code, call for ECMO and see if they may be a candidate at your institution. I think what is frustrating to any operator, either in the ED, in the cath lab or our surgical colleagues, is like 30 minutes into a code, if someone says, hey, now are you thinking about ECMO? It, it, oftentimes, the time delay becomes too long there. I won't get into the technical details of cannulation, but I think if you have the luxury of time to do the case in the cath lab, there's certainly lots of advantages. One, from a safety standpoint, you're able to view where the wire is going with fluoroscopy, where you have actually made your arteriotomy site with your initial needle. Ideally, you're looking at the midfemoral head. If you stick too high above the midfemoral head, there is concern that you could enter the retroperitoneal space and cause a retroperitoneal hemorrhage, which obviously would be catastrophic in any patient, let alone a patient that you're putting on ECMO and need to use anticoagulation. If the stick site is too low, below the femoral head, it's hard to compress there and there's a higher risk for pseudoaneurysms. The other advantage of cannulating in the cath lab is it's easier, at least in my opinion, using fluoroscopy and other tools that we have like road mapping in the cath lab to place a distal perfusion catheter. So limb ischemia is a key problem and issue in patients who undergo VA ECMO and putting in a distal limb perfuser, so about a six, seven, or even eight French braided sheath down the SFA that is connected to the arterial cannula can help at least theoretically decrease this risk of limb ischemia. And, and then there are emerging data. Admittedly, this is still unclear, but there are emerging data that actively unloading the left ventricle may be associated with better outcomes for patients who are on VA ECMO. The concern there, again, is that with VA ECMO flow, there is an increase in afterload, at least theoretically, and that can lead to the aortic valve not opening. And if the aortic valve doesn't open and the LV isn't contracting, there can be a high risk of one LV thrombus forming, and then two, just overall strain on the LV. 
So there's a variety of different ways that one could think about unloading the LV, certainly directly unloading it with a trans aortic valve pump, like a impella device is certainly reasonable. There are some reports about using a balloon pump to unload the LV and even transeptal puncture is a possibility in addition to direct surgical unloading with a surgical cannula. The last points that I would make is that if a patient does in fact get treated with VA ECMO, either for shock or for eCPR, that I think partnering in a multidisciplinary fashion is key, even directly in the cath lab, but immediately afterwards thinking about all of the different factors to care for this patient are key. So some of those considerations are one, it's very common for patients who get put on VA ECMO to become hypothermic and hypothermia will increase the risk of bleeding. The bleeding rates for patients on VA ECMO can be as high as 70%, depending on the reports. And certainly bleeding is associated with worse in-hospital outcomes, including mortality. And so thinking about treating that hypothermia will be important. Similarly, optimizing pH. So obviously, if a patient's had a cardiac arrest, aiming for a pH greater than 7.2. Sometimes these patients, even after being cannulated with VA ECMO, will continue to have refractory VT and VF. And while there isn't a great consensus on what to do, you know, I think keeping your basics in mind in particular, thinking about optimizing your potassium and magnesium status. If you haven't already given amiodarone, thinking about amiodarone and thinking about defibrillation again. With that said, I feel like I've gone overboard here. I would like to thank once again, Dr. Goyle and Dr. Ambinder for a tremendous job with Cardio Nerds and the entire Cardio Nerds family for educating all of us and a special thanks to my colleagues at the Brigham for the excellent care here and always happy to answer any questions. Feel free to reach out at any time. Thank you so much. Bye.